1: Podcast. my name is Dmitri Filipovich, and joining me for the second installment of the Quarantine Rewatchables here on the Hockey Hockeypediocast, it's my good friend Chris Johnston. Chris, what's going on, man?
2: I'm doing well, Dmitri. Thanks for uh, giving me a chance to go down memory lane. I don't usually watch any games back uh, that I was at or that I covered, and this was kind of interesting for me to do.
1: Yeah, it was fun. It's, um, I mean, we're going to do the Bruins-Leafs 2013 Game 7. We're going to talk about the whole series. I, I thought it was... A fun exercise to do beyond sort of um, poking at a wound, which I think still hasn't healed for Leafs fans, considering that they haven't really gotten any closure because of how 2018 and 2019 postseasons went for them. So they kind of just had to relive the horrors of this series beyond just sort of poking fun at that. I think it's a really um, insightful or telling series because it was kind of this like crossroads of where we were at with hockey, with the analytics movement. And it felt like, you know, this was such a a fertile battleground for that because you had this Leafs team that they talk about on this broadcast, led the league that season in hits, block shots, fights. And they sort of had this Randy Carlisle, like toughness, we're going to be in your face mentality, overcoming the shot clock. And then you had the Bruins, which were one of the best five on five teams in the league and everyone picked them to pretty handily win this series. And so when you get into game seven and when you get to the Leafs, Coming so close to winning this. um, I think there's a lot of kind of interesting uh, subtext to parse and kind of nuggets to pull from. And that's why I wanted to do it. And and you having been at this game and covered it, I thought you could uh, provide some interesting behind the scenes stuff as well. So I think it's going to be a really fun exercise for us to do.
2: Yeah, it'll be good. Uh, one of, I think, five or six Game 7s I've covered in Boston. It just seems like every series there, you know, there's one with Montreal, I think, 2014, last year, the Cup Final. Obviously, the two more Leaf series. I mean, it's, uh, it's a crazy place. They've had a lot of big games in that building.
1: And, um, as always, go, so I do recommend the listeners before we start to go back and listen to the first episode I did with Craig Custins We did the 20, 2009, 2009 cup final with the wings and the pens. Um, and I highly recommend just, you know, maybe Leafs fans might not want to go watch this game again, but, um, whether it's this game or something else, I highly recommend just going on YouTube and, and immersing yourself in a full game. It, it, it feels really good. Uh, I know there's so much else going on in the world right now, but it feels like a nice little distraction and, and kind of therapeutic for myself. I'm not sure how you felt about it to just like rewatch a full game and hear familiar voices and see familiar faces and and get back into that world. And, um, you know, it also means you're spending time at home, hopefully, and staying safe. So it's kind of a win-win. So whether it's this game or something else, I, just, I highly recommend the listeners go back and watch some hockey these days.
2: Yeah, and it's funny because you know, right off the start, yeah. it started hitting me. I mean, because you, you forget. Uh, if you're not thinking consciously about it, how much the teams change, you know, I, I we are watching the start of this game uh, in the warm up part, and there's like young Dougie Hamilton and, and mm-hmm. Tyler Sagan and Yarmir Yager. And, you know, I just, I'd forgotten the exact makeups of the two teams at, at the moment. I mean, obviously, we know some of the central characters, but uh, there's a lot of like little rewards there if you're a hockey nerd uh, and going back and remembering who was on some of the, the fourth lines and stuff like that, because it's hard to believe uh, some of those guys were, were part of this game.
1: Yeah. It's only been, it's been less than seven years now. And, uh, it feels like there's certain things that like Zidane Ochara kind of like physically looks the same. He doesn't like skate yeah. quite as well anymore, but you know, him like Patrice Bergeron, like physically, if you watch them now compared to then, like they haven't really aged that much, but then there's certain things in this game and we're going to get into what aged the best and worst where it's like, it feels like it's kind of this like time capsule from an entirely different era of hockey, even though it was only like six and a half or seven short years ago.
2: Yeah, you had Colton Orr dressing in a game seven uh, and you had oh, some theory, other players theory. too. Yeah, you had, you know, some other players that unfortunately had some things happen in their career. They didn't play many games after this that, that were good players. I mean, I guess any moment in time in sports, because so much changes in, in such a short, relatively short amount of time, uh, any time capsule, I'm sure you're going to find Demetrius. as you do more of these. It's, it's just kind of interesting to, to walk down uh, memory lane that way
1: so okay so let's let's get into the categories then and um we did this last time as well and i I think it kind of serves as a good template so the first one is where were you when and i think mine's going to be a lot less interesting than yours obviously but i just think you know this entire season as a whole not just this series was um you know most notably it starts with a work stoppage there's no hockey on until uh i think the first day of the regular season is january 19th that season and you know, looking at it compared to now, obviously it's under very different circumstances and there's so many bigger things going on in the world that, that makes, uh, an NHL CBA, CBA impasse, um, look like small potatoes. But I've never personally experienced a work stoppage like this during a season. Like I'm used to the natural flow working in hockey now for the past five, six years or whatever you have the regular season it ramps up towards the playoffs then you have the draft and free agency and that's probably the most hectic part and then you have this nice little window there where everyone seems to log off people go to their cottages everyone relaxes and then we reconvene in the fall and for it to just abruptly stop like this and there's no hockey on um i've never really experienced it like this because i wasn't working full-time in the nhl during this 2012-13 season i was still a university student i was still sort of part-timing at canucks army and and really um getting my feet kind of dipping my toes into the industry but for yourself i mean what was it like covering uh this season just from like the work stoppage and and you know i'm sure there were nuggets coming out here and there with meetings and progress and whatnot but there was also large periods where there was probably just nothing going on in the nhl
2: yeah it was it was a little unusual and and for me personally uh, i started this what would have been the start of this season working for the canadian press it was early in my career uh the the you know for the newswire and and I was covering the lockout basically almost every day and, and, you know, standing on the sidewalks in New York for endless amounts of time, uh, trying to find somewhere to charge your cell phone because we, we didn't really have an ability to work. And then all of a sudden, you know, during this time period, I actually took a job with Sportsnet that began, you know, once the lockout ended. And, and so everything moved pretty quick from December to January that year. Uh, when they, they finished the lockout, I switched jobs And, you know, you you launch into this season. And I think, you know, if if we look at where we are now, You know, there's some reminders in this season about what things might look like when the current season that we're we're talking about gets going again, or if it's next year, you know, some of the things they're talking about doing because, you know, this game seven was held on May 13th of the first round. Um, You know, it was a very late playoffs. Game six and seven in this series were played on back to back nights, Mm -hmm. which is not something you you typically see. But, you know, if we get a playoffs at the end of this 2019 20 season on the other side of COVID 19, you know, we might see some of these types of things again. So, because you know, we haven't had a schedule compressed quite like this one uh, since then, and we might, again, in the future. So it was a really weird year, 48 games um, in, in, what, three months, I guess, starting mid-January or, or towards late January. Yep. Um, you know, the, the Blackhawks, I remember, what they went 25 in a row. Or they went 25 games, I think, without losing in this season. Uh, you never knew really what to make of the teams, and the Leafs were one of those teams that, that seemed to – be a little bit better than they should be in terms of where they were in the standings. Uh, there wasn't a lot expected of them uh, at that point in time. They hadn't made the playoffs as an organization uh, for a number of years. And it was just this, this strange season that culminated with, with this series, you know, from, from a Leafs Bruins perspective and, um you know it, it it had just had a different feeling and i, I think that, that we're going to encounter that again on the other side of uh, the coronavirus here no matter no matter what it looks like i think it's going to feel weird to to jump back into something after this much of a delay
1: yeah you're right i mean they basically jammed the 48 games from january 19th to april 28th which is like a three-month window there and um it, it led to really wonky results and that's why you get a team like the leafs here where um i think maybe if you stretch it out over a full 82 games eventually regression probably would have come back to bite them and they might not have even made the playoffs to begin with and it would have been an entirely different story but in a 48-game sample you have such wonky results and it, it, it's sort of everything's jammed in there and and you're right the back the feel- Feeling that this game six seven was played back to back and during the game seven broadcast they're talking about how i think the bruins had some uh difficulties with like their their team flight and they couldn't even get into boston on time after game six and so the leafs were already in boston waiting for them but the bruins got in late and they're playing that day and it, it's it's all of it it was just kind of uh surreal to to go back and, and live through i think you know, I was thinking about this and trying to get back in the headspace of where I was at at this time and what was going on. I remember, uh, it's funny enough. Now I, w- I was doing a podcast, uh, semi-regularly with my good friend, Cam Sharon who now works for the Leafs. And, um, <laughs> I remember, yeah, I was working at Canucks army. I think I had like a thousand followers on Twitter at the time. I remember it was a pretty, uh, a different era where, uh, people like myself were just like trying to get into fights with people with more followers on Twitter to, to, to push the analytics movement and to kind of, uh, to get people to think, about it more and and um, it, it's just yeah in, in these 7 years i guess a lot's transpired and it's a it's an entirely different world we're living in uh when you just think about where hockey's at now
2: for sure, and and it's funny when you when you mentioned that Bruin story that when I flew down the morning of Game Seven, I came through the airport with them at the same time. I mean, what a, what a strange idea that a team would be flying home the morning of the Game Seven uh, team that that as you mentioned earlier was was meant to win that series and uh, was clearly the better team uh, if if you stack the lineups up on paper when when you watched what was happening on the ice. Uh, they dominated so much of that series and yet they were in a position potentially to lose it uh, with, with tough travel and not much rest uh, between that big game seven. And you're, you're right. It's uh, it, it was totally different. It's, it's amazing. Good reminder. Even if we try to think like, what's the next seven years going to bring uh, in the sport, because you know, you were pushing it, that analytics move. And I kind of remember it as, as you know, again, earlier in my career with an established media person, there's certainly some talk about it, but you know, on, On the ground, it wasn't something, say, that players are really being asked about quite yet. I think that came in the wake of this, you know, 2014, 2015, it became... You know, way more part of just the regular dialogue, something GMs were commenting on and, and question coaches were getting. And now, you know, if we want to call that a war back then, I mean, that's not even a question. I mean, players routinely and teams talk about all the kinds of things that were being fought at that time, whether they mattered or not, or just accepted wisdom at this point in time. And, you know, that's all unfolded within this a career of Zidane Char, Patrice Bergeron and, and all the other guys.
1: Yeah. And it's funny to think back that the Leafs were like the poster child of the anti-analytics movement at this time. And then you look at it now and, and they're, I think, considered to be the the front runner in terms of having uh, the most resources devoted to it. Kind of their GM is obviously part of it there. So th- it's funny how much that's changed as well. And one thing I didn't remember when thinking about this season again was, you know, because of that 48 game schedule, teams only played within their own conference and right. that was also kind of interesting to think about as well because i think at this point um you know the penguins were really good this year um you know the cap i, I think the capitals kind of had a weird season but it, the east felt like much fully whereas the west you had the blackhawks on that on that terror you were talking about earlier you had the kings still who are defending champions so I, I wonder how much of a you know, when you look at this playoff bracket for the East this season, like the Bruins win this series and then they just smash through what the Rangers and, and, um, and the Penguins, the Penguins and come in the series. Yeah. And I think the Penguins in that series had like three or four goals combined and two Rask just won all those games with shutouts. And so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting game of sort of what if, and trying to remember that, but so that kind of leads us into what the lasting legacy of this game was. And I think it'll be remembered as the it was 4-1 game, obviously, and, and it still gets talked about to this day. Um, I think about it as as, as, as I mentioned earlier, sort of this uh, two opposing forces here with how the Leafs were playing and sort of how they were this underdog compared to this Bruins team. Uh, what do you think is the lasting legacy of this game?
2: Well, for me, I, I kind of feel like both organizations are better off for the way it worked out uh, looking back because it, it did propel... Well, this game, combined with some of the decisions made immediately after it, propelled the Leafs towards uh, the team and the franchise that, that they're trending on now. Uh, which I think anyone looking at it with a clear mind would would say they're in a better position now, even though they've yet to win a playoff series. Um, you know, including this one that they had a great chance to win. You know, I kind of wonder a little bit what might have happened in Boston. You know, if they lost this game. This is probably what keeps GMs and coaches up at night when uh, you, you think about hockey, because there's just no world that these teams should have found themselves in this position in the third period of the game seven that they were. You know, before things started to flip back in Boston's favor, that that a team as good as the Bruins almost lost to the Leafs team, um, you know, shouldn't happen. But you know, weird stuff can go on, of, of course, in this sport. And you know, you're right. The legacy will be that. This specific instance has never happened in terms of a team blowing this kind of lead into game seven. It was the first time in nearly 100 year history of the league at that point that that had ever occurred. And, and you know, I do think both organizations are better off for it, at the least for the changes they made in the Bruins, for the changes they weren't forced to make uh, because they were able to win the game and go on and almost win another Stanley Cup.
1: So, what, any, what in your opinion aged the best from uh, rewatching? You know, we can stretch it out to this series as well, not just necessarily being so uh, focused on the Game Seven, but just going back and, and rewatching this and, and putting yourself in that situation. What uh, what aged the best from the series?
2: The Bruins' core, for me, you know, it's it's kind of insane that these guys are still. know among the best teams in the league you know with with these guys like char and bergeron playing such meaningful roles you know brad marchand in this 2013 game wasn't what he is today in terms of the role he had i noticed when they had the six on five at the end of the game he wasn't even among their six on the ice at that point in time obviously if they were in a similar situation now that wouldn't be the case but you know just just the what the bruins have been i mean as an organization, they haven't always made some some good decisions, and there's a couple obvious choices we can touch on from this game. But but they've managed to, to keep finding a way with this specific group that that won a cup in 2011, nearly won in 2013, could have won a, a cup again in 2019 last year, getting to Game Seven against St. Louis. And and you know I think that they've aged well, and you know you've you've hit on it a few times. I think analytics probably mm-hmm. um, looks even better nowadays, but but certainly at that point in time these were teams built in different ways i mean look the bruins cared about the physical stuff and the hits and all that too they had sean thornton dressed in the game but you know clearly they prized what they still do really well at and controlling the puck in the offensive zone um getting their cycle game going uh you know creating opportunities out of you know not having to defend as much as the other team and and um you know i think that we've seen way 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 more teams go in their direction in those seven years and and um you know whatever analytics argument was having you know before is, is over now
1: yeah I, I think back to that i think the 2011 12 minnesota wild were the first team where i remember um they were like the f- the best team in the in the in the league in terms of point percentage and wins through the first half of the season but they were like the worst shot share team and they just had this ridiculous pdo and i think it was like josh harding uh was having a remarkable season for them where he we had like a 950 save percentage or something and everyone kept pointing to that and then in the second half of the season they completely fell apart they missed the playoffs we had this Leafs team and then in 2013-14 we had the Patrick Wall halves where um, right. you know, they, they were a very polarizing team because I think they finished second in the West that season uh, Patrick Wall wins the Jack Adams, Semyon Verlamov is right up there in top five in Vesna and Vezna and hard voting and they lose in round one to Minnesota in a hard fought seven game series but then they completely crater after that and and miss the playoffs too straight seasons fire Patrick Waugh, have this rebuild to get to where they are now but it is um, with the Leafs as well lumping them I think those are sort of the three most uh, highest leverage situations I can remember of teams that sort of outplayed their uh, underlying numbers for an extended period of time and everyone kept pointing to regression and waiting for it to happen and and back then I remember it was much more of a touchier subject I think now when a team comes out of the gate and does has a mismatch like this between their underlying numbers and their wins, people point to small sample size, people point to inevitable regression. I think we're much more likely to sort of acknowledge that. I think back then it, it, everyone was kind of much more myopically looking at just like a game to game sample. And we weren't thinking about the big picture as much. So it was like a very hotly contested topic at the time. I remember
2: it was. And, and, you know, it, it, it's, it just seems so obvious now. It's funny how I guess things become accepted wisdom because, you know, people really fought you know, that the Leafs were fine. And, and certainly Randy Carlisle, the coach, you know, I spent a lot of time with around in those years was, he, he really pushed back against this because there were some people, you know, James Myrtle was a young member of the Leafs media corps at that point. I remember he was writing some of this stuff uh, again in the mainstream media. And so that, you know, was something I was noticing and Randy, real, they didn't really like the, the idea that the shots mattered to the degree they did and, and stuff like that. But, you know, the, what I've always found about, What we call analytics is a lot of it is is kind of common sense when you – when you remove emotion from it, when you're, when you're just looking at, you know, what is the best way to try to, to attempt to win a game or to tilt the odds the most in your favor, it shouldn't be so complicated, but it was a battlefield back in 2013.
1: Well, it's funny. I was actually looked this up. So the Leafs were, I think they're still one of the bottom, like 10 or so, uh, five on five shot share teams going back to 2007 that we have record of and they, they made the playoffs and they're the only team, uh, well, there's two teams in the bottom 30 since 2007 to make the playoffs with that bad of a uh, shot share. At 2010, 11, Anaheim Ducks, 45.9% shot share at 515, also coached by uh Randolph Robert Carlisle, and uh, they <laughs> lost in round one to the Preds then as well. So it's a bit of a recurring theme here. But yeah, this this Leafs team, there's like. I think there's a misconception in today's game where um, you can you look at the Barry Trotz Islanders, for example, where they clearly uh, strategically don't have a great shot share overall, but they typically look much better in terms of chances, and and they're sort of systematically trying to push the opposition and giving them and conceding shots from far out. With this yep. Leafs team, there was no real um, sort of thing to point to as oh, this is what they're trying to do because they were just bad across the board in terms of chances, quality, quantity, so on and so forth. But I remember at the time it was um, it was just kind of talked about that the Leafs were playing this way on purpose because they were kind of like suckering the opposition into it and it didn't really matter. And so it's really funny to look back at it now because there's no real... I was look, trying to look for some sort of a, a, a shining light or proof that that was the case, but it really wasn't. They were just kind of bad, but getting away with it. And, and it was a lot of hindsight where people... were just like, oh, the Leafs are doing this on purpose, and and I guess they were. They couldn't do any better, otherwise, I'm sure they would have tried.
2: Well, and what was helping them is they had a guy like Phil Kessel you know, in the, the early part of his prime who was who could help you make up for playing this way because he would only need one one little bit of real estate, a little bit of an opening, and he could score, you know, on the rush off the wing uh, the way he so often did in, in his Leafs days. You know, th- there was ways they could survive it. I mean, James Reimer had a great year, and, you know, I think one of the things Leafs management was wrong on and probably put too much stock in is, is you know, they, I think, to some degree, blamed Reimer for this 4-1 loss as insane as that is if you really look at you know what he did in that series and even the way that game played out but um you know he they, they got by with great goaltending and they had some some decent scorers and and that was enough in a 48 game season to to so far outperform what, what would have been expected of them based on that shot
1: share so what I what I have that also aged the best and I had um Bruins as well as you I think the fact that they made the cup finals in 2011 or 13 and then they had a cut that two-year sort of dip there where they missed the playoffs they get David Pasternak late in the first round they wind up drafting Charlie McAvoy and and they sort of with that group and now with some of these young contributors surrounding them and playing bigger roles come back to make the Stanley Cup final last year at the pause uh, due to the virus they were the number one team in the league and so that sort of a shelf life is pretty remarkable when you look at some of the other teams that were dominant from this era whether it was the Kings or the Blackhawks who haven't been able to sort of uh, reinvigorate their franchise and find that second breath of fresh air with that current core like especially the Blackhawks Cox, I feel like for the past two or three years now we've been having this same conversation with them where it's like, well, they have so much money committed to Taves, Kane, Keith, that they want to make it work with those guys while they still can and the thought process has been there, but they haven't been able to actually execute it. And I think because of the Bruins' success, it's sort of been, uh, I think, misleading or misguided a bunch of teams where uh, you, you look at them and it's very easy to talk yourself into that being a sort of replicable formula where we can quickly retool on the fly here and make it work whereas we see for a lot of teams those half measures don't typically work and in a lot of cases you really have to fully embrace that rebuild and fully tear it down before you can get back to those heights again
2: well and it helps finding david paschenak with a 25th overall pick or you know even charlie mcavoy wasn't right at the top of the draft the year they drafted him i mean you got to really hit on some players i think to to do that retool you're right And, and uh the truth is you're more likely to play out probably what Chicago's had to do than what Boston's been able to do you know it also helps that the Bruins aging curve hasn't hit them that hard I mean Char is obviously not the player he once was but he's into his 40s and and if they had a game seven to play this spring you can bet he would be playing pretty big minutes in that at least 20 I mean back in this day he was playing 30 odd um but you know the, these guys and, and even Bergeron is Managed to get better at an age you don't necessarily expect to historically players to get better, certainly the way we see in the NHL now. And so, um, you know, they're, they're really are a pretty interesting, special group that I don't think anybody should be saying, well, we'll just do what Boston did, because I don't know that it's, it's all that repli- you know easily to replicate.
1: You, you know, it's funny, you go back and look at this now. Chara was on the ice for 202 of 439 total minutes in this series. Um, wow! And no, no one else in this. So the next highest was Dion Funofa at 177, and then Johnny Boychuk 156. So Charles was on the ice for pretty much 30 minutes a game. He averaged 229, 31 for this entire postseason. Now there's some overtime games sprinkled in there as well, so that kind of boosts those totals and artificially inflates them. But he plays 35, 46 in this game seven, and on the second half of a back to back. On the second of half of a back to back, I think at this point he already must be in his like mid. 30s, right? Like mid to late 30s, because he's in his he's 40 now. Um, I think he'd be
2: 35. I think he's 42 right now.
1: Yeah, so it's funny because he's already, you know, we're going to talk later about uh sort of apex mountainer players who were at their peak in this game. I'd even consider Chara because you look back, he's probably already like four, five, six years away from his individual peak at this point in time, and he's still playing 35 minutes on a back to back in this game seven. And I think as the game went on, he really like doesn't leave the ice there's a couple sprinkles here of uh, Johnny Boychuk or of Matt Bartkowski randomly but it's pretty much Chara and he's so active too right like he's pinching a ton he's getting into the play on the Bergeron tying goal with uh, less than a minute left he's the net front and he's screening James Reimer while Bergeron is taking the shot from the point he's just like all over the place and he still shows sort of flashes of the way he's been able to be exposed Most recently, I think there's a couple plays throughout the series and even in this game where the Leafs basically just uh, dump the puck over his head and make him turn and retrieve the puck and skate backwards. And and they go and sort of beat him with their speed out wide and recover it and kind of make him chase in the defensive zone. But his ability to still sort of dictate the play with his reach and his size and his physicality and like the Leafs are trying to like throw Colton or out there in this game to like rough it up with him a bit and try to maybe you know sucker him into a fight or get him off the ice any way they can and he doesn't really fall for any of those traps and he winds up just pretty much playing the entirety of this game
2: he does and and you know he th- this game and and it was one thing I might you know get into a bit when we talk about age the worst but i found that there was still like some wrestling aspects to this game seven at points like yep. it, it, there was still like maybe a bit more of a focus on the physical nature and obviously the playoffs is more physical but you know there is that sort of comical like court nor colt nor getting shifts to try to knock char off as though that's going to actually work in a, in a meaningful way and is even in the middle of all that physical stuff i mean he's uh, he he was a beast in that game, and 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 was still so good at 35. And think of all the players like did, did Dion Phaneuf. I don't think he even got to 35. He had a career where he played a thousand NHL games, and and is out of the league before that age, and and, and still at that point, Chara's. Uh, not quite mid-career but still very uh, had a lot of runway left and and was just a dominant force um that i think was one of the main reasons that boston was able to get through this one
0: chara behind the play with van reamsdyke throws him down greco roman wrestling yeah he's got a history but his dad was one in the olympics there was a little bit of it right there van reamsdyke is not a small guy but chara is gigantic
1: well the Bruins um, are such a fascinating team. You mentioned this in, in terms of how they've sort of been able to um, undo the aging curves or sort of buck the trends. I think the Boston Bruins have probably the most out of any team over the past decade or so done um, – the rest of the league, the biggest disservice in terms of sort of throwing teams off of their scent or um, tricking teams into thinking they can replicate what they've done. Like if you look back to 2011 to 2010 11, I think if the Canucks wind up winning that Stanley Cup final this sort of movement of skill and what it takes to be successful in the NHL comes much more quickly. But instead, because everyone thinks of them as sort of these big, bad Bruins that physically dominated the Canucks, you have teams kind of doubling down on that. And I think we see some of that with this Leafs team in 2012-13 in terms of how they're trying to play and how they're trying to win. Um, and then with, you mentioned Bergeron, Marchand, like they have these guys that well into their late 20s and now early 30s have basically continued to get better and better offensively uh playing bigger roles scoring more goals producing more offense without necessarily giving it back on the other end of the ice and still maintaining their defensive dominance um and i think that's how people typically think still in 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 the nhl that players age they think that you know you have to have sort of pay your dues and take baby steps in your early to mid 20s and then when you're 27, 28 and you're hitting the UFA market, that's why teams pay for guys because they think that they're entering their prime from 28 to 32. And in fact, it's probably not the case. In fact, guys have probably already passed their prime because it was in their early 20s and we just don't know it. But with guys like Marshan and Bergeron, they've done such a good job of continuing to get better and better into their early 30s, particularly with goal scoring, that I think it sort of misleads people into thinking that's actually how your typical NHL develops.
2: Good point, and and look, the, the lease management that watched this game went and signed uh, David Clarkson at age twenty eight to a seven year deal, you know, right after this, that so they thought that that's what they needed, um, you know, the, the Bruins. You're right. There's just no way to, to copy what they've done. I don't think in a, in a meaningful way. It's just it's not it's not something that that should be expected, and and. Um, you know, it's 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 funny too. Like David Krejci was kind of the number one center at this point, at least the way it looked like he was being used in that game. I didn't double check with the ice time, um, but they've that uh, they've that the fact that it's the same team. I mean, to me, that's probably what's aged the best that they've managed to somehow keep that together because uh, not many uh, groups will will be like that in today's game.
1: Yeah, yeah. Bergeron's goal scoring in particular stuck out to me where at this point of his career he was like a low 20s goal scorer he constantly was like 22 goals a season or so this year he scores only 10 goals in 43 games in the regular season he Mm -hmm. scores 9 and 22 in this postseason he scores the tying goal and the winning goal in this series and then basically after this point he just becomes a routine 30 plus goal scorer to the point where now the past three years on a per 82 game basis he's been 38 40 and 42 as he's like in his 30s and it's just um it's just aging like fine wine. It's just, it's, there's nothing to really learn from that beyond the fact that he's just great. And whatever the Bruins are doing, they uh, they seem to have one up on on the rest of the league. I think the other thing that aged really well for me here was Yarmour Jar- Um He's 41 at this point. Uh, in this game seven in particular, uh, because that the line with Sagan on it hadn't been scoring. Claude Julien goes to put Yager on, on with Marshan and Bergeron and they dominate, uh, in, in what you'd exactly expect. They're like cycling behind the net. The, the Leafs can't seem to get the puck whenever they're on the ice. And I remember this season because it was that lockout. And so Yager was playing for his hometown team. And then he starts off with Dallas. He gets traded at the deadline. You're not sure what to expect. And he's a key contributor for them. And you think, okay, well, I'm glad we got this one final sort of swan song with him. He has during the Stanley cup final against the Blackhawks. They run that graphic where, uh, says his favorite player is Yarmar Yager. And then Yarmar Yager says his favorite player is Yarmar Yager. And we're like, Oh, like, I'm so glad we got to enjoy one more run with him. And then like, he goes on and he has what, four more, Really productive seasons in the NHL into his mid 40s with a couple different teams. And so obviously he's not in the league anymore now, but he's still doing his thing. He's still playing for his hometown team as one of their top scorers. And it's just remarkable to to look back and think that he had uh, another sort of couple chapters to his career even after this one.
2: Yeah. And it's funny watching him this game. Like it was a bit jarring visually. Because he still looks so slow when he when he's controlling the puck, and obviously Marchand really buzzes around, and, um, and not the Bergeron's the fleetest skater, but it it looked like it was a mismatch, but it just worked, and, and obviously they, they just do such a good job as a you know all three of those guys of uh, protecting the puck, and and you know, playing in the offensive zone, which is what they did most of this game. And, you know, I'm pretty sure Jager, uh, I don't have my computer in front of me. I don't know if he scored in this playoffs. I remember covering that cup final. He was agonizing, but not having a goal. And I, I don't think he ended up getting one, but uh, I think he was still a pretty useful member of the team and making the money he was making and what they had to give up to get him. Uh, I think it was like a mid-round draft pick at that deadline. It was a good pickup for
1: them. Um. The last what age the best that I have here and it's sort of a, a part A, part B but it's the Bruins defensive system and Tukorask. Um you know I, mean, I think heading into this season there was obviously they'd made the decision to move away from tim thomas for various reasons and give the crease fully to rask and he finally starts playing the lion's share of the games he's remarkable for i think this season and the next one where he wins the vesna he's right there near the top and then for like a four or five year stretch there the bruins are still really good defensively i think they're top 10 in terms of team save percentage and goals against but rask's numbers are much more hovering around league average than they are a sort of star player and then you know you you look back to what he did last year where he just turns it turns back the clock has this dominant postseason he stretches it into this year where i think if we don't play any more games he'll probably win the vesna for this season like so uh i I know i think matt porter reported recently that he could very well wind up walking away from the game after his next contract is done here in a couple years but it's pretty remarkable to think back to sort of that saga of him splitting the 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 crease with tim thomas the heights tim thomas had achieved and then how rask basically comes in in and matches it for a couple seasons there
2: well and, and incredibly i still think that there's people in boston that haven't warmed to him uh i don't mean in management per se but uh it seems like the fan base still believes he can't win the big one or, or what have you and that it persists even after last year's uh playoffs um, you know i know that game seven didn't go great for the bruins but i mean he was phenomenal last fall or last spring rather and and um you know, you're right. I think he's had a tremendous career, and I've heard him hint a few times. You're right. Matt Porter had it reported, but I remember speaking to him at the the NHL media tour before the 2019-20 season, and he was pretty clear. I think that that he sees the end at, at this point. I don't think he's looking to stretch his career out too long. But uh, you're right. He's uh, he's aged pretty well. Uh, you know, having the the run he has in Boston.
1: Do you have any other what age the best, or should we move on to what's age the worst?
2: i'm 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 in a negative frame of mind so i've, I've got right. to let's let's get into the worst
1: okay i'll start us off phil kessel yeah. slander right it has to like at this point <laughs> in time there was still this conversation uh obviously about how much the lead paid, paid to get him his game uh it felt like we'd always sort of highlight or nitpick or focus on the negatives in terms of his skating sometimes without the puck his defensive play his energy um you know, you've got the hot dog story a couple of years after this, I think. Uh, and then he gets shipped out of town and we think about it now, he's not only a two time cup winner. It certainly helps playing with Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin, but you can make the case that I think in that one season, right, it was the first cup run. Um, like if I had a ballot, I would have had him as my cons might pick that year. And so it's funny how we sort of, um, how much the consensus changed with him and sort of how far he's come as both a player, but also someone that we sort of talk about. I think generally hockey, Twitter and the internet now seems to really sort of, um, just love phil kessel and uh everything he represents and and all the jokes and everything about him whereas at this time uh i felt like people still weren't in on the joke and and were just kind of critical and, and quite frankly mean about him And honestly, so much of it was it
2: was tied to like the way he did interviews or how reluctantly he was to speak to the media. I mean, I I do think this is one of those things that if it was today's the exact same circumstances with a player like this, I just don't think he would have got the amount of negative attention that Phil did because, uh, you know, people with powerful voices were putting a lot of stock into stuff like that. And I think, you know, that's happening way, way less and less. People are much savvier as fans. I think that the the outside uh, public has a better idea of what goes on with the media and players. It's, you know, it's far less sort of secretive that way. And you're right. It was, it was insane. uh, Some of the heat that he got and this was a big series for him. You know, I remember he scored a big goal in game two, um, you know, for the Leafs to, to, you know, even that series up 1-1 coming home. And, and, you know, he'd had so little success against Boston. I mean, that that was a real thing. Uh, he'd played 20-odd regular season games against them as a member of the Leafs since the trade at the time that this happened. And only had three goals, I believe. And so to to come into a playoff series like this, end up scoring four in those seven games, including a couple of ones that were game winners, big goals uh, that helped the Leafs. I think that this was... This was kind of a, a bit of a crossing point for him to put some of that that nonsense behind him, but um, you know certainly anyone who was dogging on Phil had uh, had a poor concern, and I, I kind of feel like the next argument we're eventually going to have involving Kessel is, is will he be a Hall of Famer or not mm-hmm. because he's he's on the cusp of it. I've you know I've looked at this with David Amber, my colleague at uh, at, at Hockey Night in Canada and Sportsnet, who who loves having these hypothetical arguments, and and you know Phil Phil probably will go from. The guy having that hot dog story written about him, I think, at one point, to, to being a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. Turn,
0: shoots up high, save, rebound, hit the post, it Kessel on the rebound! Phil Kessel makes it 3-1! to one. Hanging around to right place, right on the edge of the crease, Phil Kessel has finally come out from that shadow that's been over him ever since he got traded to Toronto.
1: I had that on my uh, not the teaser, but most unanswerable questions. Uh, if he's going to be a Hall of Famer, you know, it's it's interesting because like he's going to smash past what four hundred plus goals, a thousand points. He's got the two cups. He's still only thirty two. Um, I think the fact that his efficiency has declined and now playing on this arizona team um just the compilation of those numbers might slow down but at the same time what he does have working for him is that sort of durability where what he hasn't missed a game since 2010 i believe and so uh if he can stay on the ice and he can kind of keep compiling those numbers uh similar to what patrick marlowe's done for example i think that with a combination of the team success is going to be a really interesting debate
2: yeah it is and and you know he's he didn't miss a game from the time he first suited up for the Leafs. So he missed, I think, twelve games or something to start his first year in Toronto after offseason surgery, mm-hmm. and he hasn't missed a game since. I mean, that's that's insane. He took all this heat while playing through every single game, too. I mean, it was. He's one of those guys, and other athletes get put in this category. I think that people always want to focus on what he isn't, you know, more than what he is, and, and you know what he is was more than enough, certainly in his best years.
1: So tying into that, um, do you remember back then, uh, do you remember the hope smoke Twitter account? I do. Yep. So he, you, you transcribe all of the, uh, all the Leafs media on TSN and sports and all the radio hits and everything. And I had that on, on my, what age the worst, not that account, but just, I remember at this time when we talk about this analytics debate, whether it was, uh, Dave Poulin or, or Claude Lozelle or, or any number of media members going on and sort of, um, basically kind of towing that Leafs company line in terms of they were playing this way on purpose and analytics were stupid. And I remember them talking up like Mark Fraser, for example, he only plays a couple games in the series, but I remember it was a very divisive topic because he was like plus 18 this season. And everyone was like, you know, that type of style just leads to to on ice goal results. And this is why him and the <laughs> Leafs are so good when he's out there. And then you look and it's like, he has like a 107 PDO and it just, everything seems to be going his way when he's on the ice. And then the next year he's minus 15 in 42 games. And then he's basically out of the league the following season. And so it's funny to sort of look back at that era now and tie that all together. And I, I remember um, part of why it was so divisive was because there was this sort of propaganda coming from the Leafs that uh, that was actually the way hockey was supposed to be played. And I think for a lot of people that weren't sort of educated on the topic, they were just sort of going with that company line. And that's why it was, it was uh, so polarizing.
2: Yeah. And and this one that I had written down is a little bit similar, but I think maybe degrees different as as in terms of aging. The worst was the way the Leafs front office operated or thought. And, you know, what's so interesting to me is that the following november after this series so the start of the 13 14 season there's a, a conference every year on the hall of fame here a sports media conference where lots of you know interesting speakers are always talking it's called the primetime sports media conference they've known us the gm was part of that and he did a little scrum afterwards with reporters and, and he acknowledged that there was money in the team's budget at that point for analytics to be spent on analytics but they couldn't decide what to spend it on that they they, they That they weren't convinced that they'd seen different presentations from different groups, but that they weren't convinced anyone really knew what they were talking about at that point in time. And so, you know, even if it wasn't propaganda on purpose, what was clear is that they truly didn't believe it mattered. and you know to the point where literally in a public setting like that they're acknowledging that they have money in their budget for it that they're not spending because they don't know where to spend it and you know so much of it comes through in this series I mean uh even watching this game seven you know I thought Mikhail Grabowski was you know one of the least better players I know he was on for a few goals I think part of why what happens next he gets bought out inexplicably in the offseason after this game seven that says actually the last game he played for the Leafs and I think he's minus 10 or something in the series but if you look at all the underlying numbers I mean he was probably Toronto's most effective forward he had really low zone starts Uh, he had one of the better shot shares on the team Uh, he had I think 55 or 56 percent high danger chances when his lines out there I mean he was doing things that, that weren't resulting in, in the goals at that point in time, probably some bad luck. And and so the management comes out of this series, they let his linemate Clark MacArthur walk away uh, for no raise in free agency, and, and Clark had a good series too. And they mm-hmm. buy Kropovsky out, and it just it just... To me it's totally indicative. I think if if you have a more process driven front office, if you're looking at more than just the boxcar numbers, I don't think any reasonable person comes out of this game seven and makes those sort of decisions. And you know, so that's why I think that the front office thinking at of the time is is probably what what's aged really, really poorly.
1: Well, okay, so on that line, I think in this particular game, it was one of the few instances where the Leafs actually had the right deployment or the right usage of their forward lines. And it's funny to look back at what had to happen for that to take place, right? Tyler Bozak, I think gets injured at some point in game five. And so he misses yeah. game six and seven. And that forces Randy Carlisle to basically promote Nazam Kadri to play with JVR and Kessel. And mm-hmm. those three are just so impressive together, watching the, this tape from from Game Six and Seven both, where they're just every time on they're on the ice, it feels like they're creating a chance or a goal. And Cadre's usage in particular, I know he was only what twenty two or twenty three at this point, but he's playing under fourteen minutes a night for this series. He's playing less than guys like Jay McClemon, I think he's tenth on the Leafs in usage amongst forwards in this series. And that MacArthur, Kulim, and Grabowski line. For whatever reason, you look back at 2010 11, they played like 800 minutes together, 43 to 24, goal differential at 515. 2011 12, they were the least best line, undoubtedly. And then for whatever reason in this regular season, they only play like 58 minutes together and they still have good numbers, but they had this, uh, they were getting outscored 5 to 1 in that time. And I think because of that, Randy Carlisle was like, this isn't working. So you went away from it. And he only starts going back to it later on in this series. They only wind up playing 24 minutes together, but have just crazy underlying numbers together. And it's kind of hard not to look back and think this Leafs team was clearly very flawed and had a lot of uh spots throughout their lineup that weren't being optimized, but If they just rolled with their actual best unit, which was that top six with those two lines together full time, like they could have made some serious noise. I know they were close to winning the series, but just from like a process perspective, you could do a lot worse than those six being your top six forwards.
2: Well, it's crazy if in an alternate universe, let's say they find a way to squeak out this game. They keep rolling with that top six. Maybe they have some of that success. Maybe they can beat the Rangers. You know, I, We'll never know, of course, but I don't think it's crazy to at least imagine that possibility. And, you know, Clark MacArthur was scratched at the start of this series. It was crazy that that was, you know, a decision that was made. I think, you know, Fraser McLaren might have played over him at one point at the start of this series. And, and, you know, he came into it and scored two or three goals and a couple big ones. So, um, you know, the, the, the coaching staff, was not making great decisions. And, you know, even if you look at the blue line, I mean, the, the Leafs' blue line, they were overmatched in that area. I mean, I don't know. Yep. They were dealing they were dealing down a card or two there to, to really be able to there do this right. There was a lot right. of Ryan O'Byrne. But there was a lot of Ryan O'Byrne, and they played a lot of Dion Phanof in this game, and maybe they did no other choice. But, um, you know, it just, just felt as though they weren't maybe running as efficiently as, as they might have to, to give themselves the best chance to get through this.
1: So you brought this up in terms of you brought it up earlier. I had it as an unanswerable question, but let's get to it now cuz it's sort of an organic point of this discussion. I think a lot of people view this as sort of a silver lining for this game where because the Leafs lost, it eventually leads to them going in a different direction and, you know, all the changes they make in their front office, uh bringing in Shanahan, bringing in Lou, bringing in Mike Babcock, Kyle Dubas and then Eventually, getting the young stars they have now in Matthews, Tavares, Marner, Nealander, so on and so forth. But the reason why I don't know if that's necessarily true is because I think, if anything, the fact that they came this close to being the Bruins without getting over the top sort of empowered them to double down on it because you just look at their decision making. I mean, this summer, what they sign. Uh, it's Tyler Bozak to a five-year, $21 million deal. They gave 29-year-old David Clarkson seven years, $36.75 And then they've also Trade given, for Dave Bolin. They trade for Dave Bolin, give three draft picks, I believe, for him. He's an expiring deal. But they also, at this point in time... um, And and yeah, right. They, they brought out Mikhail Grabowski one year into his five-year deal just to make that happen. But then they're also committing... What? They give Dion Phaneuf a seven-year deal around this time. I think that the following December... They've already given five years to 29-year-old Joffrey Lupul. They've given four years to uh, J.M. Lyles, who's already in his 30s. Like, it, so I, I, I kind of push back on the idea that it was a blessing in disguise because it eventually led to the changes. I think certainly if they had made a long playoff run, maybe it would be a different dis- conversation. But I think if anything, the, the way the Leafs viewed it was, oh, we're so close to being on the right track. We just need a little bit more oomph or whatever to get there. And that led to a bunch of horrible decisions that summer.
2: That's a fair argument, but I'm looking at the I'm going back one more year because the next season after they made those those decisions that summer, it was so evident that they had screwed up, that they were not being run very well at the, at the top that it led to bringing in shanahan, uh, which led to completely gutting this front office and coaching staff uh, and even the scouting department at the time, and then rebuilding where they are now. and and I guess what we can't know is if, you know, what they've got there anyway, if they, if they were lucked their way past Boston, no matter what happened in that, this 13 playoffs, you know, maybe 13, 14 would have been a disaster either way. And they, they might not have done, um, you know, some of the things they did and they would have maybe ended up in this place anyway. But, you know, I just feel like Dave Nonis in particular and and that front office would have had a degree of, I, I don't think the ownership would have been as likely to bring in Shanahan um, you know, it's, if they went on a playoff run this year, you know, within another 12 months of that happening, I, I, I do think it would have bought him some internal currency that he didn't get to have. Instead, they're sort of viewed as, you know, the, you look like a flawed team, even if whether that's fair or not, if you blow a 4-1 lead in a game seven with 12 minutes to play. And, you know, I think that this started to undermine the way, um, the, the front office was viewed. They made further decisions that summer. Many of them you've just highlighted that are indefensible. But by that, by the time that you saw another year go by, I think it was pretty clear you had to make changes in that front office. And you know that that brings them around the Shanahan era. The, the Leafs of probably gotten a bit fortunate with some of the things that have happened in terms of being able to, to, to bring on as many top-level young players as they did so quickly under Shanahan. But you know clearly his arrival in the organization represented a, a, a shift in philosophy, a shift towards analytics, towards skill, towards hiring a young Kyle Dubas and, and you know creating the, the path they're on now. So I, I just wonder if they won this game. I don't know if they would have got there so quickly. I, I really think that that would have given management, you know, more power uh, to, to keep making these same mistakes. And, you know, they might not end up with the team they are today.
1: That's fair. Yeah, in terms of a line of decisions or sort of relics from a time capsule, the Leafs fourth line now in their defense. I think Fraser McLaren plays only one game in the series. Mike Brown doesn't suit up at all. But for this regular season, just looking back at some of the stats, it's it's truly Uh, remarkable i think we need a full (laughs) espn 30 for 30 done about this colton Orr, fraser mclaren mike brown line where colton Orr is leading the pack there with 623 per game ice time fraser mclaren 509 mike brown four minutes and 39 seconds per game those three combined that season for five goals 38 fights and 13 misconducts just amazing just an all-time line
2: Right. And they mentioned on the broadcast, actually, that the Leafs led the league in fights that year. So, yeah. you know, that was part of that grit character, uh, block shots, spend the whole game in your own end kind of philosophy they were deploying
1: at the time. Yeah, the Leafs had eight fights this year before the break as a team. And those guys had 38 that season. Pretty, pretty remarkable. Um what age the worst for me the leafs core of players in their mid to late 20s here we've sort of touched on it but it is remarkable to look back at um and i guess it kind of just speaks to the attrition of the game but you know whether it's friends and uh cody franzen whether it's clark MacArthur, whether it's dion fan of nikolai kuleman joffrey lupel even leo komarov who's, who's still playing for the islanders but at this time, though, all those guys were sort of in that mid to late 20s window, and we just talked about how the Bruins, clearly a different caliber of players, but how gracefully they'd sort of age into their early 30s, and a yep. lot of these guys were, by the time they were 32, they were just out of the league. You know, it was, it was very unfortunate, sort of just genuinely sad stories like Clark MacArthur's post-concussion syndrome and stuff like that, but it's... um for those guys to still be such effective players at that point, And then within like three or four windows at a, three or four years and a snap of a finger, just be out of the NHL entirely is uh, is pretty jarring to look back at now.
2: Yeah. A lot of those guys unfortunately got paid not to play at the end of their career because they, they right. got contracts that they weren't able to be healthy enough to, to perform on. And, and, you know, some of that's the sport, but I think some of it's, the, the guys that, that the Leafs were compiling and betting on with those contracts, and you know it's a shame because Joffrey Lupul actually played some pretty good hockey when he was healthy for the Leafs. Yep. He just wasn't healthy enough, and they gave him one more five-year deal at the end, which was the one obviously where where Lou Lamoriello ended up telling him he was done. Right. Uh, you know, basically put him to Robina Island, as it was called in, in Toronto, um, to, to finish out that deal. But you're right; it, it was it was a flawed core um you know i think it was to a point actually where when brendan shanahan took over you know one of the reasons that that they traded kessels because he was very tradable but they were worried that that something was left over from that core that that you know that it wasn't the hardest working group that they might have had a penchant for the party lifestyle you know there was a lot of rumors around the team at that time off ice too so right. um you know it, it really didn't age well and and you're right even with better coaching and some better decisions around them i don't think it was going to be good enough to to consistently you know challenge a team like the bruins anyway
1: yeah i mean less than i guess six plus years later seven of the 27 players the leaf used leafs used that season are still in nhl and only 10 of the 30 that the bruins used so it's remarkable that uh you know it's it is such a sort of game of attrition where there's so few guys that Like six or seven years isn't that long of a period of time. It's like not like even when I was doing the 2009 show with, uh, with Customs about the Red Wings and the, and the Penguins, there's still like a bunch of guys over a decade later that are still kicking around the league at various spots, obviously at different stages of their career. But for so many of these guys to just be like completely out of the league is just, is just pretty crazy to think about. Um, the other one that I've got here is the touch icing. Did you notice watching this game, like how weird it was um, to actually have to wait for the defenseman to physically touch the puck before the referees in a delayed manner blew the whistle? Like there, thankfully, there was no sort of um, closely contested potential looming injuries because of that in this game. But it was kind of jarring for me to watch that because I've been so trained to as soon as the guy is passing a certain point of the ice, just you're all of a sudden getting ready for the face off of the under other ice
2: very weird and it's funny if, as you do more of these if you're doing more old games like it's just funny how much the sport looks different in general i mean it, part of it was probably what the Leafs were doing deployment wise but they had a few power plays in this game and i'm like what is that setup like what are they even trying to accomplish let alone what they're not accomplishing and and the rules change and, and the way i think the game's coach has changed a fair bit and it shows up even seven years later just some of those things to your eye it does it it doesn't make sense to, to see that because you, you've become used to what we see so often now in, in today's NHL
1: well it's great you that you mentioned that I actually had a note about how um I think for the full season but especially in this series like the Leafs were exclusively using a top pairing with Cody friends and, and Dion Fanoff on it right and um in lieu of you know, I think Joffrey Lupo would have been an interesting player to have out there. Uh, Nazem Kadri as a shooter, as we've seen him develop later on in his career. Even Jake Gardner as a puck mover. Uh, you know, I know he's the defenseman, but Grabowski, like there's so many other interesting weapons and skill sets that they could have incorporated there, but... I guess teams were just like, yeah, we're just using three forwards, two defensemen. And so it felt like most of their operation was centered around that big shot from enough on the top of the point. But um, the interesting thing about that is like, I think his first couple of years in Calgary, He had like 39 power play goals or something in those three years, some crazy number. And then he had like 30 the rest of his career. And I think because of those first three seasons, it just stuck as like, he has a huge shot. He's a power play weapon. So we're just going to have him on the top unit and revolve around that. Similar to what we see teams doing with Shea Weber. And there was just no data to actually suggest that that was the right strategy, but they just kept going with it. And you're right. That was something that age the worst is going back and thinking about the Leafs power play now where they just got like the puck moving side to side between Marner and Matthews. And it just like, it's just an entirely different sport being played out there.
2: Well, and what they have now is some control generally, even when it's not good, you can sort of see what they're trying to do. I mean, in this game, and I didn't watch the previous games in the series back, but like they were brutal and they get a cheesy, they actually get a cheesy power play goal early in the game from, from from Franzen. But you know, it's not as a result of any sort of, system or anything they were running. I mean it just kind of a shit happens kind of goal. Um, you know, they didn't get set up once that I could really see. There was like one little time where where Kessel was kind of working it off the half wall that I remember. But like power play wise they they were like they were lost in this game. And and frankly, because the Bruins were a bit undisciplined early on in game seven, they could have probably capitalized on a couple of those power plays they had and maybe even been up five one instead of four one and maybe this is a different kind of podcast.
1: So Claude Julien's tough approach with young players I have at what age the worst they're talking about how in you know in the previous years they'd benched or scratched Tyler Sagan in big games in this series Dougie Hamilton only plays three games and I think he plays like 10 minutes in one of them Um, you know and and, and tying into that the Sagan and Hamilton obviously they're ensuing trades a couple years apart it was pretty crazy to look back at now I think there was one point in this, at the end of the second period, they have a power play, and they actually have Sagan, Hamilton, Marshan, Krejci, and Bergeron out there as a five. And you're just like, <laughs> oh my goodness! Like, can you imagine this just running rough shot on the league uh, for the next however many years? And it's like, nope, uh, those guys do not play another single regular season game together again after this.
2: Yeah, crazy, and it's funny because they got so little essentially, now that we have the benefit of hindsight out of those trades, I mean, how much better would the Bruins be just for those two players still today? Um, You know, it's hard to argue that... There's no way that that wouldn't have worked out better for them than, than even where they're at. And... You know, maybe one thing I'm thinking after watching a game like this seven years later and from both sides is sometimes leaving is not overreacting to anything like, yeah. like leaving well, well enough alone. The Leafs probably would have been better the next season, even without the changes they made that off season. And the Bruins certainly long term as a franchise, um, you know, they, they've they've squandered some pretty good players. Um, you know, at least with Kessel, they turned them into those two guys right. with the draft picks they got. Um, but it's amazing how many great players have been traded out of Boston in addition to the ones that we've been talking about, how they've they've aged so well together.
1: So the winner of this category is the Tyler Sagan trade. And I I, I did a full deep dive on this in preparation for this show. So I'm going to give you some stats here just to... Perfect. Because sort of, everyone knows like, oh, like Tyler Sagan's a great player. They traded him for a bunch of magic beans. But just think about it this way. So this regular season, Sagan, Marsha, and Bergeron... Is their de facto top line. Those guys yep. play 435 on five minutes together. The Bruins are outscoring teams 26 to 4 in that time. They Ooh. have a 64% shot share. They're like, they're not the Bruins' best line. They're the best line in the NHL, arguably. And then you get to this series. Sagan has zero goals on 29 shots. And I actually went back and watched parts of uh, the other games in this series and particularly early in the series. Like he hits the post a couple of times. He's all around <laughs> the net in this game in the overtime. They actually commentators mention how he's like the best player on the ice. He's constantly just around the puck and around the net creating stuff. But he has zero goals on 29 shots for the series. He has one goal on 70 shots for the postseason. And then you watch that behind the b Uh, youtube video which and my unanswerable question is how have the bruins not taken that video down yet um it's just honestly the best video i think i've ever watched so you have this room let me paint the picture of you you have this room of bruins executives and basically the big theme there is they're waiting to hear from nathan horton's agent on what he's going to do and so they hear that nathan horton is going to walk away and he's eventually going to sign in columbus right and when peter peter shirelli breaks that to the room Jim Benning, like full on looks like he's about to cry and starts face palming. You have people going like, oh my god, how could this happen? And then Shreley goes into the soliloquy talking about how now they need to find a player comparable to Nathan Horton because they're missing out on him. And so he goes, Now we can to do that, a player I've been shopping is Sagan. And like within minutes, he makes a trade with who we now know is Jim Nil. But it's just startling to think about that process and the fact that he was right about to start a six year deal making less than six million per season that he didn't even get to start with the Bruins, so he signs that in September two thousand twelve and in year one he's already playing for the stars he scores thirty seven goals that following year he's basically had thirty three or more in five of the six seasons with the stars and so just looking back at that chain of events and the fact that they basically viewed one goal on seventy shots as like a sign that he wasn't able to get it done and one of the scouts who I think is the Bruins' assistant GM, Scott Bradley, or like a special advisor to the GM, so far as it goes to say, if Sagan could only give us half of what Kane gives Chicago, we're winning the Cup. And they sort of hold that against Sagan as a reason why they need to move him. It's, all of it is just truly baffling.
2: And they're making that series of decisions probably within two weeks of losing in the Cup final. Yeah, I mean, instead of looking at it like, Tyler Sagan will never have a run of luck like that again in any future playoffs. And we still almost won the cup without him being able to to produce offensively the way you'd expect him to. It's insane. Uh, And you're right. I guess probably the reason that video is still up is because all the important people in that video have basically since left the organization. So um, they're not embarrassing any current members of the front
1: office. And all of them went on to prominent positions with other teams. Um, And
2: some of them still hold prominent positions with other teams.
1: I mean... I at one point even says, I've been looking at the Twitter verse. And then he says something about what's going on with a contract. So like, he's aware of what's happening. He even references Twitter. It's right. I mean, yeah, it is. Um, you can tell that I haven't spoken to any of those guys, but you can just tell from the way they're interacting that they it's within two weeks of losing. It's still very raw to them. And I think they like genuinely are upset about if Sagan could have given them a bit more offense. They genuinely feel like he cost them a cup and that's why they're trading him. Just like to trade a 21-year-old at that time who's already been nearly a 30-goal scorer is just... I mean, I'm out of words for it, but I felt like we really needed to talk about that here because in terms of what's aged the worst, you really can't find anything that's aged worse than that.
2: No, and and it's funny. I was thinking about Sagan's career. I mean, he's, he hasn't really had a chance to, to go on much of a playoff run since then. So it's uh kind of strange how it's turned out he's such a great player but dallas hasn't been able to to really mount too much of a a charge of the cup with him down there and but i'm certainly not blaming him for that
1: The dougie hamilton trade so they 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 keep him for a couple years and he actually starts playing quite a bit of minutes for them but then in june 2015 they move him for 15 45 and 52 he signs a six-year deal with the flames Um, and the reason I bring that up is because the Bruins infamously have 13, 14, and 15. Bob McKenzie's draft rankings have Matt Barzal at 9 and Kyle Connor at 13. And the Bruins still go off the board and take uh, Zach Senishin and and Jakobs Borrell and Jake DeBrusque, who's turned into a nice player for them. But it's funny because I think a lot of, when we talk about this and sort of how each team is aged, people still go, Oh, well, for as much better as the Leafs are, they still haven't gotten a better result than they got this season. And we can talk about all of these horrible decisions the Bruins made and people still go, well, they still made a cup final after and are one of the best teams in the league. But there's just so many little intricacies and details of like squandered opportunities where the Bruins could conceivably have in a very realistic world, like four other just young star forwards they'd obviously find out to find a way to pay them eventually but it's just like just thinking about all of the machinations of what they could have had is 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 really um considering we have nothing else to do these days uh like in terms of fantasy booking it's a really fun exercise well and it's it's
2: crazy because obviously no front office hits on every decision or anything no. like that but i mean it's not hard to imagine a reality here where they're a lot better set up than they even are currently i mean they're probably I don't know were they the best team in the league this year 1920 or yeah they had the best record I think yeah probably in anyone's top three no matter how you're gonna you know look at the 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 top and and they could have all those guys still just on the cusp I mean you know you'd you'd be shuffling out I guess the creches and stuff to probably make that work financially but um you know Don Sweeney I think has done a nice job that was his first draft when he had 13 14 and 15 uh, back in 2015 Mm-hmm. Uh, and and a lot of people doubted him after that. I think he's made a lot of good decisions since that time, but um you know that that one is is gonna age poorly, just like the Sagan and Hamilton deals.
1: Okay. Uh that's enough negativity from us. Let's go to um the defining moment or the turning point. Where does this game really flip the script for you?
2: For me it has to be the Horton goal to get them back to four two because you know, even if you're the Bruins and you know you're better than the other team, or you believe you're better than the other team, if, if if that game gets 4-1 much later in the third, it's just hard to imagine what kind of push they would have had or if some belief had to come off their bench. But I think, you know, for me, them seeing him score that goal, I think with 12 minutes, give or take, left in regulation, it just makes it feel doable, or certainly 11 minutes, uh, something like that. And, you know, I think that's where it comes back, because from that point on, I mean, the Leafs, other than the, um, that Matt Fratton breakaway that that didn't even become a shot on net, uh, the Leafs didn't really have much at all. And and obviously any team up four one is going to go into some sort of defensive positioning. But you know Boston completely took over from that point on, and and you know you can just see what happened. It's almost like you felt it happening before they even tied it. It just uh, you know it just seemed so inevitable from that point. So I think that getting that that one that second goal in the game putting a little doubt in the Leafs' mind and still having enough time left to, to make a good push and tie it up was was probably where it turned.
1: Yeah, so I think Horton scores with like 11 minutes or whatever left or just under 12 yeah. to make it 4-2. And the Leafs at that point, you can kind of tell they make the decision of like, let's just park the bus here and hold on for dear life. And I think they basically cross the center ice with possession like twice the rest of the way. And they're two matt friend has the one clear breakaway with a couple minutes left which he doesn't get a shot on it but then he has one where like he recovers a loose puck and he's basically in alone against rask and he misses the net on that as well yeah 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 there's a lot and of I'd, matt frat in this game it's funny because
2: i'd forgotten about the second chance i remembered the breakaway but that was something i noticed too this did another like
1: really back. good like, one and he just kind of missed wide
2: what a what a weird thing
1: yeah <laughs> And he's like, I mean, he gets traded a couple times after this, but he's another one to add him to that core where, like, he played a big role for the Leafs this season. I think he plays 17 minutes in this game, and he's out of the league like a year and a half later. And yeah. um, did he have a serious
2: knee injury? I think maybe. I think he might yeah. have been one of those guys that had a yeah. an injury that probably contributed to his abrupt end of his career.
1: So, the most rewatchable sequence for me. There isn't particularly one I'd say from like two minutes left in regulation onwards, like when the when Claude Julien pulls Rask and the Bruins really start to press, I think uh, maybe for Leafs fans, it's not the most rewatchable sequence. But I'd say like those two minutes and then obviously the first whatever five plus in overtime, like if you have a 10 minute window to watch, it would be that because uh, there's just there's just so much action and just how aggressively the Bruins push um, is really interesting to look back at
2: it is and it's funny there's another one that didn't age well i mean the fact he only pulled rask with about two minutes to go down two uh, is not something we'd see probably any coach do nowadays
1: great point um is there anyone in this game with like the biggest heat check performance which i typically would give to a player that was kind of an unsung hero so in that game seven of penguins red wings we gave it to max talbot scores the two goals wins the series for them in this one like the bruins top six and then uh, Zdeno Chara basically do everything. Like, there's a lot of Matt Bartkowski. I think Ziden- Seidenberg gets injured in this game, like one shift or two shifts in. So, Bartkowski plays like 24 minutes or something, and he actually creates quite a bit with his skating. But there isn't like it's kind of the the names that you'd expect are the ones that really do the heavy lifting for the Bruins.
2: Yeah, it's like one of those ones that, that challenges sometimes. You know, the the idea is that it's the unsung heroes that win you game seven, like Talbot did in 09 for the Penguins. But in this game, it was all. The main characters I thought that that drove the bus that were making the key plays, you know Barkowski's probably your best one to nominate just because he was surprised to even play scored the first goal, and you know he had to play some minutes because they were they were on a shortened bench
1: actually Cody Franzen. I know it's a in a losing effort, but he scores the two goals um, he also makes some mistakes but it's it's the perfect Cody Franzen game because. At that time, he was such a divisive player as well, right? Because he couldn't really skate very well, kind of looked awkward on the ice. And so I think for a lot of people that just used purely the eye test, they didn't really like him as a contributor, whereas his underlying numbers were always pretty good. So the analytics community defended him. And so I remember there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of Cody friends and debates online. And uh, he actually has a pretty good game in this one. And he scores the two goals to make it 1-1 and 2-1. But um Yeah, I guess that would be a heat check because clearly whenever you get two goals from a defenseman like that, you're not expecting it.
2: He had a pretty good celebration after the second goal too, so give him some bonus points
0: there. MacArthur, nice feed out to the right point. Franson with the grab, he scores! Cody Franson will have his second goal of this game seven, and the Maple Leafs have a two-to-one lead. Talk about the guy with the magic touch. Cody Franson, with this shot from the point. The puck flips up a little bit.
1: Um, most unanswerable questions. So we've already done a bunch of them. Um, for me, an interesting one is, and we've kind of hinted at it, but how do the Bruins Jedi mind trick all of their players into taking less money? Um, you know, like David Krejci (laughs) right now is currently their highest paid player at 725 It'll be really fascinating to see what happens this off season with Tory Krug and whether he falls in line as well and takes less money than he can probably get elsewhere to stay on this team. I'm not sure that he will, but I wouldn't be bet on it yeah i wouldn't bet on it either but i mean if any organization could put a lot pull it off somehow it would be them and i think that was part of their logic behind uh trading their first to get rid of david backus's contract as well but you just look at all the money and part of it is sort of smart decision making where we're going to sign these guys to long-term deals and suppress the cap hit with Pasternak and marshan and bergeron but yeah when david creche is your highest paid player at seven million and you have as good of a team as they do like you're clearly doing something that's uh whether it's culture or whether it's um once you set that high bar everyone else just falls in under um, under it i don't know what it is but whatever they're doing they're doing it well
2: yeah and what about this how, how is Daniel Char doing it i mean that's it's probably the second part to the, what we were talking about earlier is is you know at his age how has it been possible he could still play and contribute, you know. I, I don't know. I mean, we know about his freakish workouts, and obviously he's got a unique body uh, size, uh, you know, for an NHL player. But um, you know, that 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 for me is unanswerable. I would also love to know what Peter Shirelli and those guys on behind the B would have done if they lost. Oh, um, you know, maybe it's only still just trading again Maybe that would have been their play. But you know, just wonder what other changes might happen if they they went down in this game.
1: Yeah. I'm sure they would have done something if uh, Peter Shirley's career is any uh, any indication. Um, was Luke Shen for JVR the original? The trade is one for one.
2: Should be. <laughs> it should JVR be JVR. Was so
1: good in this series, like it felt like uh, the Bruins really needed like two or three guys around the net to corral him, and even at times they were like illegally in this game, just ho- hooking and holding for dear life, and he was still just getting free and was just unstoppable physically in the series really.
2: Right, and he's he's a big guy. I mean, obviously he's not a physical player per se, but he's he's hard to move and he's got such great hands around the net. It's funny, I was having a debate with one of my colleagues here who's doing a best 25 Leafs players the last 25 years and he was we were arguing about JBR Spot and I was like, "Man, that guy scored a ton of goals as a Leaf." Like you know, he could have stayed in Toronto other than they were, you know, facing the cap crunch they're in now and still been, you know, I think a, a useful member of the team today. And, and you're right in this series, he and Kessel both had had pretty big series uh, and, and I think it helped getting Kadri up there. You know, he probably should have been there all along, but, you know, Kadri played pretty well in that game seven as well.
1: Um, I think that's it for unanswerable. We've done a lot of them. Is there any uh, Twitter takes you wish you had in the moment in hindsight after watching this game?
2: Uh, this game isn't over yet. Maybe when it went to four-one or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I thought they, actually the broadcasters did a pretty good job of they, right. they didn't they didn't go too far. I mean, we, I watched the NBCSN broadcast. Mm-hmm. I didn't rewatch the CBC one, so I'm not sure what the the more Canadian centric take would have been. But the, the, certainly NBCSN didn't go too hard on like you know these Miracle Leafs are about to pull something off. I mean they they, they were pretty. I thought level-headed about where the Bruins were at and and that they still had a chance and, you know, they were pretty good on Boston's push there. But, you know, I was booking flights up in the press box at that point or booking hotels anyway in New York thinking that I was going to be covering our Leafs-Rangers series next and certainly I didn't at the time see that comeback coming even even though it makes sense seven years later watching it on a Saturday morning in my apartment. it, it, It makes more sense watching the game that way. But at the time, I thought the Bruins were cooked.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was on Twitter at this time, and I was I was making a lot of takes. I'm I'm proud of myself that in hindsight I would have probably made as well. I think.
2: Did you go look but, up what you were tweeting? Or
1: no, I didn't. But oh. I think like I was. I remember people were pretty critical. Like I I'd, I'd be reading like Cam Chiron's work, and and he would constantly be hammering home how you know MacArthur um uh, MacArthur Kuliman, and Grabowski are their best line. Um, how Bozak probably shouldn't be playing as much as he is on the top line with Kessel. And that's what we talked about. Whereas I think as this series went along, and particularly in this game, that top six for the Leafs looks so good that it makes you wonder why it took them so long to get there. I think certainly would have been hammering home the point of like Tyler Sagan looks really good and they shouldn't be demoting him and he should be playing more. And certainly never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that they would trade him that summer. But um, I guess you could see sort of the frustration with how they were handling him. And the other one is the Leafs game plan where I, you really could tell after Horton makes it four two that they had a mandate of like, we're not crossing center ice. Don't even, don't even try. Like the the two times friend got free are really the only times they ever create anything. And it's no, one's really been able to sort of find that cure to score effects yet in hockey. I don't know if we ever will. It's kind of like a, deeper psychological thing where it's human nature to try not to screw up as you hold on to that lead. But, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of tough to rewatch because they're so clearly so conservative. And it's funny when Horton scores 4-2, the shift before that, the Berger online has like a 90 yes. second shift in the offensive zone where they're just firing so many pucks on net and then the Leafs ice it and then. Or they or they get, they kind of meekly clear it and get a change, and then the Bruins come out with the crazy line and Horton scores. And that would have been a good take where it's like, oh, my God, when that line really got cooking and that shift happened, even though it was still 4-1, you could tell that the momentum was really swinging. Do you know what's funny? And there's not a natural
2: place in our conversation to put this, but watching this game back, like one thing that occurred to me or – that I thought is that that I totally forgotten is the Leafs kind of had earned a lead at the point they had a lead. Like you know, Boston had a really strong start to the game, and then they didn't have much until that third period. And you know, it's just interesting. And, and as I mentioned earlier, they were pretty undisciplined and took some penalties and put themselves in a spot to lose that game. And that's that's the funny part. If you're you know, it was almost kinder to Toronto for me watching it again up to the point where they built that lead because I thought it was reasonably justified I mean, maybe not certainly 4-1 but um you know i thought the leafs had played a pretty decent road game to that point and i and you just wonder i guess maybe they had no gas left playing back to back or being so overmatched but but why they went into the shell they did um you know because they were having some success especially in the second period with with some of their speed and and using those things and they completely abandoned it the minute the, the boston started to push
1: yeah yeah well i mean it was a flawed team but when they played their best players, they were good. I just think they had a misunderstanding of maybe who their best players were or what the most effective way to, to win was at that point. So I think right. that's kind of the issue. But yeah, I mean, when you had Franz and Gardner out there with either of those top two lines, like they were they were creating stuff and it was fun to watch. Um, so I have Doc and Eddie's commentary corner here. Obviously, those that team didn't call this game on NBC. It was uh, Brian Engblom between the benches and the late Dave Strader on play-by-play. I thought they did a really good job. I kind of enjoyed it actually. It was nice because for a lot of these big games, you go back and especially if it's the NPC, it's it's the same old voices every single time. I, I enjoy the fact that Strader, at some point um, in the first period, he's calling him um, Franzen and then or like Franson or something, and then he basically says, "Well, I'd like to thank Twitter for um, correcting me," and then he basically starts calling Cody Franzen correctly in the second period onward. So I kind of like that sort of acknowledgement and the fact that he was on Twitter, seeing what people were saying during intermission, Brian Engelman at one point goes, Jake Gardner is a wild Mustang out there. He'll create for, his I own wrote team. that one down too. <laughs> he'll, go, he'll, he'll go, he'll create for his own team. And then he takes a little break and Dave Trader lets it, lets it marinate. And then he goes, and the opposition as well. And they both chuckle and <laughs> considering Gardner's reputation and what happens in this game, what happens in the other game sevens in boston it's uh it's a pretty bang-on description
2: well and it it goes without saying i think that that was jake garter's best ever game seven in boston uh yeah i thought he actually played pretty well yep. in in this one uh, i obviously remember the, the the last two a little more clearly and he had some tough nights in those ones
1: okay so apex mountain who was at their peak i think a lot of the players were either young enough where they weren't there yet or were past it already I would say um, the the Bruins' second line here of Krejci, Horton, and Lucic, to watch that back and sort of look back at the numbers, they were so good. Um, and I guess one of my unanswerable questions too was like, did we, have we just woefully underrated Krejci this entire time? Because he's just sort of lost in the shadows behind Bergeron and kind of doesn't do anything super flashy, but he's been around for so long and been so productive. And if you look back at those two cup runs in 2011 and 2013, they were their most effective players. I think Krejci and this one has 26 points that postseason, and yeah. no one else even has 20. Um, they were, they were just, they were remarkable to watch. And especially in this game and we kind of segues into who won the game. I think the best, and I can't believe I'm saying this, and people who listen to guys will not believe this, I think the best player on the ice in this entire game was Milan Lucic. Rebound gets score!
0: Bruins score! Like they did last night, late in game six, to get to within one, and this sets up a very interesting minute at 22 seconds. Milan Lucic again, the most dominant guy, just gets in good body position and refuses to give it up. I'm with you. And
2: for me, he was my number one apex guy. I mean, he yeah. was a he, he was a beast. His and skating
1: was remarkable compared to him yeah, now, right?
2: Getting in on the forecheck and forcing turnovers, and and you know, it's not just the hits. And obviously, scores the one goal, the, the goal to get it back to four three. But you could just he he looked like he was in command out there. Uh, even his body language, kind of the way he was with the team. Um, he was this has to be right near the apex of his career. I don't think it. I should have looked a little closer. I don't think it got much better after this point in time. And and certainly in this particular game, I think he's probably the number one reason that they they found a way to to win that game seven.
1: Yeah. I think he was 25 at this point and and his production does sort of progressively decrease from year to year after this. He plays a couple more years. He goes to LA and then he signs a big contract with Edmonton, but um, he plays the biggest roles in both the four, two and the four, three goals you know, he scores the one in front of the net and it's sort of what you'd expect from Lucic 4-3 where they just can't box him out and he's basically just physically manhandling people until he gets the rebound and scores. But on the 4-2 goal, it's sort of the most illustrative of what he was at this point where he like transitions the puck into the zone, takes it out wide around the net and then flings a cross ice pass to Horton who taps it in and it just like compared to what we've seen over the past couple of years from him as the game's gotten faster and he's physically gotten slower it's it, it is it's tough to sort of reconcile those two things i mean it happens obviously he's in his 30s now and with that body type you're gonna physically decline but man he was his skating was next level in this and, and i think he was the best player for sure
2: do you know what's funny total aside but i i actually went this this year during the season, and I was at a game in Calgary in the stands. I got a couple of good buddies out there, and I went and visited them. We went to a game. And every time he touched the puck, I'm not joking, everyone was yelling, Looch! Like, he was yep. really popular in Calgary this year. And he's a, he's a really good guy. I mean, I find him mm-hmm. easy to cheer for. I know he's been maligned. Obviously, he's wildly overpaid, and he's, you know, at a point where he can't produce. But it, it was cool to watch him and be reminded of what he was in his prime because – you know, especially in the playoffs. I mean, he was the the very definition of a power forward.
1: He was. And Nathan Horton as well. I mean, there were so many instances with that chemistry with those three where either Horton or Luchich would always be around the net with their stick down in the right place, just waiting for the puck to come to them and they would tap it in. And, you know, Horton in this postseason, he's got 19 points in 22 games. Um, and then he signs that somewhere. We talked about how the Bruins front office was just distraught when he decided to leave. And as everyone knows, he signs a seven-year, thirty-seven million dollar deal. Plays thirty-five more games and is out of the league by twenty. By the time he's twenty-eight, and um, yeah, it's just watching this. Like it's him and Lucic are just such fluid skaters for their size, and they're so effective. But it is also the perfect sort of reminder of why um, power forwards age, and how once you get into your late twenties. You should probably not be committing big money to them. So if anyone if any GM out there is rewatching this and uh, formulating their off season plans, maybe this would be a good reminder to uh, to go back and watch this game and, and consider how you're spending your money moving forward.
2: Yeah, and what a shame for Orton. I mean, this yes. the, this wasn't the Apex, this was this was kind of the final moments other than the press conference in Columbus and half a season there. And, and um, you know, he was, you're right. That, that line I thought was, was awesome with them and Krejci, uh in this game. And I didn't, I didn't remember that. I mean, Marchand was certainly not bad and we talked about earlier how they controlled the ice, but I, I was kind of struck by how he wasn't so much a part of the central part of the story quite at that point. It didn't feel like to the degree these guys were in that game seven.
1: No, particularly when it came to scoring, that line was their number one offensive line. So, um, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to look back at. Anyways, CJ, I think that was it. Was there any other um, takeaways or, or things you had in your nose from watching this? I think we we covered pretty much all of it.
2: Yeah, it, but it really was fun. Like, it, it's it's yeah. it's cool to go back. I mean, obviously, most people don't have the time. Uh, yeah, when, everyone we're at the it. time
1: these days, I think.
2: But right now, we have the time. I mean, it's either this or the F1 doc I've been watching on Netflix or – I gotta get into that Tiger King at some point, but I might as well be uh, might as well be watching some of this stuff because it does it does actually give you some thoughts about you know what the decisions teams make and you know this was a such a huge moment for both of these teams both these organizations and um, you know a little bit of a what could have been feeling if if the Leafs somehow get through that game it would have been a, a miracle.
1: Yeah, hopefully the Leafs fans that are still listening uh aren't too distraught, but I think things ultimately it took a while. There were some rough patches for sure, but it, it wound up working itself out. I'm glad you mentioned that F1 doc. That's actually been my uh favorite thing that I've discovered during this break here. It's um I think maybe we should just quit the NHL and start covering F one when thing when the world resumes because the personalities on that show are just remarkable.
2: It's insane. I mean yeah. I I it makes me wonder how long it's going to be because inevitably I I feel like all sports will go in this direction I mean fans want it you know but to where where how long will it take hockey to get to the point where we can see some of these conversations you know I'm I'm thinking of you know you have Richardi Richardo negotiating his contract in the middle of the season you got him and his agent talking privately about it like I think fans want to see that stuff and and Hockey so far is is more conservative, but I I hope in time we get more all-access type of content because I I do think it helps sell the story of the games, you know, more than just who wins and who loses.
1: Yeah, you've got the the, uh, Red Bull guy basically just telling the Renault guy they're going in a different direction and he's like sitting there in the press conference just watching it happen and unfold before his very eyes. You've got the teammates just like I can't tell if the rivalries are better between the different teams or between the teammates themselves at times it's if anyone hasn't watched it i, I highly recommend it so that's our uh, that's our netflix recommendation of the day cj this was a blast i'm glad we got to do this uh, stay safe wash your hands do everything you can to help out and hopefully um there's going to be brighter times for us to talk about hockey with on the PDO cast together
2: for sure be well dimitri and let me know what uh, the next rewatchable game you're doing ahead of time so i can watch it before
1: listening to the podcast absolutely love it man take care Bye now. The Hockey PDOcast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash